Welcome to episode 37 of Lil Muck, an affiliate of the Odd Pods Media Network. This is a tiny slice of the Muck podcast where we talk to people in the media and politics about their favorite stories or experiences. I'm Tina Jaramillo. And I'm Hilary Doherty. Today we are interviewing Vice Dean for Faculty in Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at University of South California, Gold School of Law, Fernita Tolson. Hillary, tell us about today's guest. Today's guest, Fernita Tolson, is Vice Dean for Faculty in Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at University of Southern California Gould School of Law, where she also holds a courtesy appointment in the Political Science and International Relations Department. Her scholarship and teaching focus on the areas of election law, constitutional law, and legal history. Her research has appeared in leading law reviews and focuses on a wide range of topics, including partisan gerrymandering, political parties, the election clause, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the 14th and 15th Amendments. Vice Dean Tolson is one of the co-authors of the leading election law casebook, The Law of Democracy. Her forthcoming book, In Congress We Trust, Enforcing Voting Rights from the Founding to the Jim Crow Era, will be published in 2022 by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Professor Tolson. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Oh, we're so glad that you're here with us. Yes. So why don't we start with um, you telling us a little bit about your career and what led you to go into law? Um, so I, <laughs> it's actually funny because when I tell the story, I'm like, oh, my God, I went into law because I didn't want to be a, a broke PhD student. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but luckily it worked out where I could um, use law to facilitate my interest in history. So as an undergrad, I majored in history and I love it. I love it still. And so I was looking at graduate programs in history um, and also law school. Um, and so I decided to go the law route because um, it just didn't seem like there were clinical jobs for um, history PhDs. Um, and so I'm glad I did. Uh, I still sort of regret not getting the PhD, um, but I, I do think the law route has allowed me to do things that um, I never could have anticipated, you know, when I started this journey 20 years ago. Um, I, I, I kind of connect with that because I was an English major. I did my master's and then I debated between going to law school or for a PhD. And then I ended up landing a job and I didn't do either. So I totally get <laughs> that, that, uh, route completely. Yeah. So well, one thing I've noticed though, in terms of the overlap in the two paths, I've really always been interested in ways to the lives of people. Mm. Um, and so I worry that, you know, the PhD, you seem to improve the lives of people in your immediate vicinity, right? You have graduate students, um, you know, maybe your colleagues, but it just didn't seem like it had that immediate payoff. Like I, I went into law school thinking about all these different career paths that would allow me to have a broader impact. Um, and that's one thing I totally got wrong. Uh, because <laughs> if anything, recent events have taught us that history is important, right? That people yeah. have forgotten sort of the struggles that we've had as a country mm. um, and, you know, minority people in this country and just the, the things that have happened to disadvantaged groups over the course of our history have mm. not been front and center enough to prevent certain things from happening recently. So it really made me, so I'm glad I did law, but I also have an appreciation for the historians who I think do very important work in reminding people of where we've been our past. Oh, yeah, we, we talk so about that important. on the podcast so all the time because we do on the regular muck episodes, we do stories from throughout American history and politics. And mm -hmm. we go back to the 1800s. It's like, wow, this sounds like something that just happened yesterday. It's mm -hmm. incredible how history repeats itself <gasps> here and how we don't learn. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's the dog. How we don't <laughs> learn from from past mistakes. 
I know that when I do a lot of my uh, public facing work, like I've written for the New York Times and the LA Times and such, and one of the things I love to bring in is um, a lot of history in order to show that what we're seeing now um, is not unprecedented. So I wrote a piece uh, after the January 6th insurrection where I pointed to the uh, Wilmington insurrection of 1899, which was in North Carolina. Most people hadn't heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a situation where a duly elected government was overthrown by white supremacists. Um, and I pointed out that, you know, the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th felt like they were having their 1776 moment. Right? Yeah. They were ignoring that we had a free and fair election, that we had selected a standard bearer for this country, Joe Biden, and they felt like they were entitled to have this moment. Yeah. And I just wanted to point out that that feeling is not unprecedented, that the, that the sequence of events is not unprecedented. And in yeah. fact, not only has it happened before, it has happened successfully. Yeah. where duly elected governments in this country have been overthrown. Mm. Yeah, yeah, Tina, we, Tina yeah, covered, covered that, that story, Will, the Wilmington story uh, on the podcast. It's incredible. And even the reactions that we had to that that episode of people who had no idea. My sister lives in Charlotte, and she had no idea that that mm-hmm. had ever happened, you know, all those years ago in Wilmington. It's incredible. But to know that history, mm-hmm. then the January 6th insurrection doesn't look so unfamiliar, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like um, a lot of people finding out about Tulsa now, the Tulsa race riot, because we just had the 100th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, that was an uh, entire sort of red summer. Um, yeah. And in fact, there was like a uh, really a 20 year period where you had race riots throughout, you know, our, our country where black people were just murdered. Um, and so, but for a lot of people, this history is unfamiliar. Right. Yeah. So you recently exchanged words with Senator Cruz during a Senate hearing on voter ID laws. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, in my role as um, a law professor, and this is another thing I, you know, never thought I would get a chance to do, right? It's just amazing where life takes you. But Mm. in recent years, I've had the opportunity to testify before Congress a few times about uh, the need for uh, updating and modernized voting rights Act. And I've also had the opportunity to speak to them about H.R. 1, which is mm-hmm. sort of the omnibus election bill that will change many facets of our federal election. Mm-hmm. Um, and so recently I testified before the Senate um, on H.R. 4, which is the uh, the proposed new coverage formula for the Voting Rights Act. So in 2013, um, the Supreme Court in a case called Shelby County versus Holder struck down uh, a portion of the Voting Rights Act that required certain jurisdictions, mostly in the South, but a part, parts of a few other states, um, to pre clear any changes to their voting laws with the federal government before those laws could go into effect. And the court felt like we now live in this post-racial society where we don't need something so extreme, right? Mm. Like, usually states are the ones that oversee the election apparatus. The fact that they have to check in with the federal government is just bad, bad, bad. So in the last few years, that has proven to be um, a, a really terrible insight especially states that used to be covered but they, they are certainly not exclusive to this right we've seen voter suppression efforts in other states as well that what that weren't covered but um co- formally covered states have been particularly aggressive about making it more difficult to, to vote for minority communities in the wake mm-hmm. of the shelby county decision um so my testimony before congress was uh, primarily to inform on the scope of congressional authority over elections so that Congress is in the process of trying to update the coverage form and knows exactly what they can do and not run up the Olive Supreme Court precedent. Uh, so that sort of set the stage for the exchange with Senator Cruz. 
um, which was unusual in a couple of respects. The, the few times that I've testified, I usually, um, so the Democrats invite witnesses, the Republicans invite witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and normally, at least in my experience, the Democrats talk to their witnesses, the Republicans talk to their witnesses. Um, it's a little disheartening if you think about it. So because I'm an academic, I feel like my job is to educate Congress, mm-hmm. not educate Democrats, not educate Republicans, right, right, educate right. Congress. Yeah. Right. But in terms of procedure, that's usually how they, you know, sort of handle it. Um, so when Senator Cruz is like, I have a question for all five witnesses. I'm like, oh, cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like I, I finally get to dialogue yeah, with yes, a Republican. That. And this yes. is really, really cool. Um, and then, you know, he hits us with this question and I'm, you know, and I'm like, okay, the question in and of itself is, uh, I mean, in retrospect, it seems like a gotcha question, but at the, at the moment, it kind of felt like a fair question, right? Because it, it sort of invited this dialogue about voter identification laws, which a lot of people don't understand, right? right? They typically think about them as being just one type of law. You have to show an ID. Uh, but the voter identification laws actually vary. They vary across states. You can have different types of uh, ways that voters identify themselves. You can have signature match. Um, you can have voters sign affidavits if they don't have an ID attesting to who they are. Um, sometimes states allow um, poll workers to vouch for people. You know, there are a number of ways where voters have identified themselves um, in order to vote. It's not just about having a driver's license. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm thinking that when he you know, ask the question that he was inviting this dialogue. And, you know, it, 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 I guess I, I, maybe I, I was just being naive and too optimistic. I can concede that now. <laughs> uh, but but the, the conversation definitely did not unfold like that. You know, it was, it was just he just wanted something for his fundraising efforts. And I just wasn't Ooh. here for it. Uh. Good for you, though. I know. I mean, who wants to, yeah, and, and why do you want to help him raise money? No, thank yeah. you. I, no, I want to be a part of that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, so what do you see is the biggest threat against voting rights today? Um, so the biggest threat is states having total and complete control over their election system, right? Mm. History has taught us that the states have, abuse this authority generally. Yep. Now, I'm not saying that every state is a bad actor, right? In some ways, H.R. 1 is a an amalgamation of best practices from the state, right? So some states have independent commissions for um, drawing um, their legislative districts. H.R. 1 has a piece of that. You know, some states have um, automatic voter registration. H.R. 1 has a piece of that. So, you know, I mean, you see sort of, sort of best practices. So I'm not advocating for a total federal takeover of elections. But I think given our history, we have to be particularly vigilant when it comes to the threat that states um, have historically posed and still pose to minority communities. And so passing these two bills is, it's really like a last chance, mm. right? Like it's the last chance for, for Congress to really put its foot down and say, okay, this is an inclusive democracy. Yes. Right. We are going to set boundaries and rules that require states to adhere to this principle because it's a universal principle. It's not something that can only be true in you know, 25 out of 50 states. Right. Like, this is Ugh. something that America as a democracy is committed to. And so there should be uniform federal rules over some pieces of this in order to promote that principle. And so if Congress doesn't do that, and we live in a place where, you know, you live in a democracy if you live in, you know, California, but not <laughs> if you live in Alabama, mm-hmm. then that's a problem. Um, and we shouldn't want our country, you know, to, especially if we're going to hold America out as, 
the, the premier democracy in the world, right? We love that rhetoric. Yeah. We're the light on the shining hill or whatever they call it, right, right? right? Like, if we're going to do that, then we cannot espouse democratic norms and democratic ideals and have something less than a democracy. But I do view sort of HR1 and HR4 as our last opportunity to do that. Uh, because there's no telling what's going to happen with the 2022 midterm. Yeah. Oh, um, gosh. So, and that's going to require getting rid of the filibuster. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. It does. Please. But it's worth it. Yes. <laughs> worth it. Get rid of it. Oh, please. Ridiculous. Please. You've mentioned this piece with HR1, and you've written about partisan gerrymandering and maps being mm-hmm. redrawn. We're in the state of Florida, so we really mm. see <laughs> Good Lord. firsthand like the, the frustration with this. So can you talk about what you see as maybe a better way with uh, setting these boundaries for voting? So it's interesting you mentioned Florida. I actually taught at Florida State for eight years, and so oh, I have wow. some familiarity with yeah. the Fair District Amendment, yeah. right? So yep. in Florida... Um, the state constitution um, said that the state legislature couldn't take partisanship into account um, in drawing district lines. Right. And it's proven to be completely toothless yeah. <laughs> because mm. it's still really, really gerrymandered. And so I think that also shows the need for federal intervention here and why independent commissions would be a good thing. Because even when you have, um, and, it, and that passed through citizen initiative, right, ballot initiative, um, just like the... Um, the amendment down there with that re-enfranchised uh, some, some people with felony convictions for purposes yes, of voting. Yes, yep. And then, of course, the state legislature passed a law saying that they had to pay all their fines and fees. Right? It's so ridiculous. It seems like every time, <laughs> every time people in Florida try to make their sort of state more democratic. Yeah. The state and, but, and that, that passed, that passed yeah. on both sides. That was, uh, yeah, that was set up in such a great way. Yeah. It was nonpartisan and it was overwhelming that people voted for that. Overwhelming yeah. on both yeah. sides of the aisle. It's, it's ridiculous what happened. Percent, and it was bipartisan. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that that also shows the need for more federal intervention because um, HR1, for example, will re-enfran- re-enfranchise those mm. with felony convictions for purposes of voting in, fe- in federal elections. Um, so, so in some ways, the federal legislation is a response to what we're seeing, right? It's not like we're not letting the democratic process play out at the state. It is. And then these state legislatures are coming in and stopping it. Right. <laughs> or, or yeah. you know, meeting in the middle of the night to vote on bills to make voting harder, right. uh, make it harder to vote them out, right? So, so at some point, you know, we have to say enough is enough. Um, gerrymandering in particular is concerning um, because, you know, states are redrawing their lines now, right? So yep. the, we just had a decade where some states litigated their 2010 plans over the course of most of the decade, mm. right? Like I remember the Supreme Court resolved, excuse me, the Supreme Court resolved this last decision over Texas's 2010 plan in like 2017, Yeah. right? So, which is crazy. Yes. Um, and now we're going to do it all over again. Um, mm. And But now we're doing it in a world where there's no Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which would have required um, some states to pre-clear those plans with the federal government. So there's no Section 5. Mm. Um, there's no judicial intervention, right? The Rucho case that the Supreme Court um, handed down a couple of years ago tells us that they don't want to be involved in this. Um, so we, we are living in the wild, wild west <laughs> when we it comes are. to this redistricting process. Um, so again, I can't advocate enough that Congress needs to get involved. It's 
I mean, uh, this is so depressing. (laughs) 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 How the heck are we supposed to get anything moving? And even when you, you know, you bring up amendment four, which was the voting, the voting for, um, returning citizens. And then also, um, we passed a marijuana, you know, to legalize marijuana here for medical purposes. I think it was a few years ago. So the people of Florida have progressive ideas and then Mm -hmm. the legislature just does whatever they want when, uh, when they come back into session, it's, it's, it's insane. And yeah, now we're doing redistricting, which we've heard a lot on the ground here. We're in Broward, which is a pretty blue county but we've heard a lot about Mm -hmm. how they're going to change these lines to benefit and we're worried we're worried yeah we're worried um yeah but one of our one of our neighbors is oh sorry go ahead no, I was just going to point out why why you should be worried. Oh, great. In order to make the conversation I already don't, more depressing. Yeah, I already don't sleep at night, but please continue. Please. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> so I, I, I used to, when I first got into teaching, I used to teach a case, um, one of the, the early um, sort of cases that the Supreme Court heard dealing with this issue of parks and gerrymandering, where they confronted the issue squarely of whether or not there's a cause of action under the Constitution if, mm-hmm. you know, the, the state engages in partisan gerrymandering. This case is called Davis versus Ben Boehner. And Justice O'Connor, I'll never forget this, she wrote this opinion where she thought that gerrymandering was actually kind of a good thing, but she used to be a legislator in Arizona. Mm. Um, so it's not surprising that she felt that way. But one of the justifications for her belief was that gerrymanders don't always hold, right? Over the course of the decade, there's still opportunities for the party out of power to come to power, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think this is, it, it's kind of true. It, it wasn't like a universal truth. But yeah, we've seen where sometimes voters are able to overcome the gerrymander. Right. One of the things that I'm thinking about going into this next decade because of the sophistication of the software, I don't think that's true anymore. So not only are we looking at extreme gerrymanders, it is unlikely that voters will ever be able to turn out in sufficient numbers to overcome it. So we're stuck. Mm-hmm. And, oh. you know, when you say take power, like the party that's not in power, there's opportunities. You know, I think that there's a lot that depends on the actual, that party's infrastructure and like their yeah. plans. And when, mm-hmm. I mean, quite frankly, we live in a state where that doesn't exist. Yeah. So, you know, our governor at the time right now is um, out, out raising the entire party by like $20 million a quarter because he's going out of town to get mm -hmm. money. And so it's very difficult. I mean, and I'm not, I hate that money is a part of politics, but it's really important if you want to actually have a, some skin in the game here. And you know, it's just, it's very unfortunate. You're right. There's just, it's a, it's a, Oh my God. It's so depressing. Yeah. I can't take it. We got to leave Tina. We got to leave Florida yeah. as soon as possible. We need to go somewhere else. <laughs> um, but one of our neighbors is, President Donald Trump or Ugh. ex-president Donald Ugh. Trump. He lives in Palm Beach, which is just not the us. us. But he always, he, you know, he's still running around saying he's going to run in 2024. Like, is there a way to stop this from happening? Is there any precedent that we can use that like stops this or something that's been, that we can do about it that he won't be eligible? Well, I mean, it's possible to disqualify him under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies those who engage in insurrection. Ooh, yes. Um, now, <laughs> there was a lot of debate during the last um, impeachment proceeding about um, whether or not it was worth moving forward, uh, but it was worth moving forward for purposes of disqualifying him yes. um, mm. from running again, but then impeachment failed. Uh-huh. And so um, I, I do a, a podcast with Ned Foley, who's at Ohio State, and he wrote a blog post recently where he talked about Section 3 as still on the table, right? Congress can pass 
uh, a statute which basically would uh, uh, disqualify Trump from running pursuant to Section 3. Mm. Uh, now, what that happened, uh, according to Ned, it's not subject to the filibuster, right? That they can do this. The Senate can do it also through simple majority vote. Like, Ooh. you don't, it, the filibuster isn't a bar here. Um, okay. But I'm still not convinced that this is something that will happen for a couple of reasons. Even though I think, you know, Ned's point is well taken and, and Ned's point is a dream, if only, right? right. Mm. Um, one of the things that has bothered me about all of this, the January 6th stuff, the response to it, the, you know, the fact that subpoenas are being ignored with the commission and all of this stuff is that why we, we are in such a hurry to move on, right? Yes, like to pretend yeah. like this thing that happened, what, 10 months ago never happened. Right. It's literally Wild. like one of the worst things that has happened to this country yeah. in decades. Like, I mean, it was, I just remember sitting at home watching this and mm. couldn't believe that this was happening I in know. the United States of America. Shocking, right? shocking, right? I know. Um, and, but despite that, think about the, the, the immediate response. Republicans still returned to Congress and voted against the electoral slate from certain states in order to call them into question. Yeah. After supporters just stormed the Capitol. I know. Right? Like, it's incredible. It's hard to believe that we're living in this world yeah. where there are no consequences. No consequences. And the um, spin that they're putting on it is is wild, too. They, you know, they, act, they act like it was a picnic. Yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> like people, they were tourists. Yeah. This, this was, these are not tourists. Yeah. Right? These were people who felt they felt justified. I think the you know, you have to understand the ideology. It's very important here. If, as, as long as people feel justified and feel like they this was something they had to do, then we have to confront it, mm. right? We saw this in the wake of the Civil War. This is this is the yes. the modern version of the lost cause, mm. right? If we sit here and let them change the narrative about what happened, well, following the Civil War, this is why we end up with statutes commemorating yes. Civil War right. generals everywhere oh because God. they painted it as a I good know. cause. Biggest oh. biggest mistake in this country was not persecuting all of those people. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Putting them in jail. Yeah. And also like the thing, put them in you know, jail. We yeah. talked about the insurrection and, and Wilmington, the massacre in Wilmington. The, one of the biggest differences, not only is, you know, different, you know, hundreds of years later, mm -hmm. or whatever, this was televised. Yes. This was televised. So yeah. everybody in the world, there's no yeah, we question we of what it. we were watching. We yeah. watched the speeches ahead of time, telling them to go in there and mm -hmm. do what you need to do. Every one of them, including the president of the United States, telling them to do that. They get in those buildings and they did exactly what they said they were going to do. Probably could have done a lot worse if they hadn't been stopped oh, at some yes. point. And it was televised. There's no question what this was. But they still spin it. They and still, they still spin, spin it. it. It's incredible. And, and, and that people can look at that and see something completely different than what it actually was. Yeah. That's the scary part, too. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. And the fact that, you know, people who stormed the Capitol that day, they are venerating like Ashley Babbitt, you know, it's unfortunate that that young lady died. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, I really hate the, all the lives that were lost that day, but she was also committing a crime. Yeah, Right. Absolutely. Right? And so, you know, it's not, this is just part of changing the narrative. Right? Yeah, now she's a martyr. A when in fact she was doing these, yeah, she's a martyr. When in fact she was doing this horrible thing. Yes. Right? Absolutely. That led to unnecessary loss of life, including her own. That's mm. right. That's right. Oh my God. Oh what my a goodness. mess. Oh, well, before we go, I really would like uh, to hear about the book coming out, your book coming out uh, next year, if you want to talk about that a bit. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so one of the things that I noticed in um, writing in this area, so what I, I write, I'm an election law scholar, mm -hmm. but I'm unusual 
in the sense that I write at the intersection of constitutional rights, so the right to vote, but also structure. So these questions of which level of government can regulate. Um, and so there wasn't a ton of scholarship on this, right? There are a few people in addition to me who write on it, but I found myself looking for sources when I was wondering about, okay, can the states regulate this particular aspect of election administration or the right to vote, or is this the federal government's job? How should we think about this? And so I realized I just need to write the source, right? Like, yes. I really just need to write this book that talks about what Congress can do in this space and based on what Congress has done. Um, because one of the things I noticed is that um, the 14th Amendment gets outsized attention here. Uh, so the 14th and 15th Amendment. 15th Amendment is a prohibition on the right to vo uh, on voting discrimination um, based on race. And the 14th Amendment protects the right to vote, um, at least implicitly, according to the Supreme Court case law. So it, they should get a lot of attention. It's been very important, particularly since the, the 1960s, in protecting the right to vote. But as we have a Supreme Court that pushes back against broad reasons of the 14th and 15th Amendment, it really has fallen into Congress's lap to pick up the slack mm. and try to figure out how to protect the right to vote independent of the court. And so the book focuses on those provisions that give Congress authority to act mm. rather than provisions that focus solely on judicial enforcement. So the elections clause, for example, while states can set the time, places, and manner of federal elections, Congress can make or alter those regulations at will. It's really broad authority. This is the authority for H.R. 1, for example, right? Because mm -hmm. Congress doesn't have to have a reason to displace state law. They just can't. Um, also, Article 1, Section 5. So Article 1, Section 5 allows Congress to judge the elections of its members. Historically, Congress has refused to seat um, individuals elected in contests that were marred by racial discrimination in voting. Right. This is a history that a lot of people don't know. Mm. Um, so I argue that it's also it, it remains a very powerful source of congressional authority. Mm. Um, and then finally, like the guarantee clause um, is another focus of the book uh, where Congress guarantees to each state in the union a Republican form of government and does have something to teach us about these new voting restrictions and whether or not this undermines the commitment to Republicanism. Um, and finally, the book talks about Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. So I, I got a chance. It's rare for me to talk about Section 2 and Section 3 in the same conversation, <laughs> but <laughs> that's kind of awesome. Um, so Section 2 actually allows Congress to reduce a, dele uh, a state delegation in the House if the state abridges or denies the right to vote of its citizens. Oh. Um, it's never been enforced, but imagine what would happen if it was. Wow. Right? So if Texas passes the law like it just did, making it harder for people to vote, a substantial amount of people are disenfranchised. Congress can reduce the um, the the proportion, remove the proportion of people who have been disenfranchised from the number that it uses to determine the the seat allocation, and then Texas could lose a seat, right? Same thing for Georgia, wow. right? Those people are removed from the denominator, um, but it's never been enforced, and so essentially Congress has all of this power lying around that has not been used to the full extent of its um, capabilities, so. You know, I think that the book, at the very least, says to Congress, hey, this is what you can do. Now, what you do with it is up to you. Yeah. <laughs> but you do have this power. I, I almost wow. feel like, um, you know, the Democrats, when they're in power, they don't do a lot of things because they're worried that when the Republicans get back in power, they'll do the same thing. You know what I mean? So I feel mm -hmm. like they don't take advantage of the time that they're actually in power, Yeah. you know, in, in Congress. Yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, but don't so they already do it though? And that's that's a, always my confusion. The the Democrats are um, hampered by fear while they're in office. But right. The Republicans 
end up doing way more than what they fear once they come in power. Yeah. So I don't, <laughs> I, know. See, I don't you know, get the deterrent. I don't <laughs> I don't we I don't need either. to turn it around. So would you, cause I want to, I want to say something. Are you a constitution nerd? <laughs> I am a you constitution sound very, nerd. Yeah. You sound very, sound very excited about yes. it. Like the way I talk about music. I'm like, I'm a little nerdy when it comes to me. You sound like it with the constitution. It's exciting to you. It, it sounds exciting. I know. But it makes it, but it makes it exciting. Like listening to, to it. it. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I, I really want to learn more. Like know, after listening amazing. to you. I love it. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It's so awesome to meet you. And I, you have no idea how much we appreciate your work and doing this to bring attention to these rights and the things that Congress can be doing for yes. for voting rights. And it really means a lot to us. So important. Thank you I so, so much. It. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course. It was um, so nice to, to have you on. And we will, I hope you have a great weekend. You too. Thank right. you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. 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 If you want to see any photos or take a deeper dive into our stories, please follow the episode notes on our website, themuckpodcast.fireside.fm. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Muck Podcast. To support The Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level. Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. 